0: The sermon text reading is from Mark 2, verses 23 through 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, what are they doing that is not—why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him— How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If you haven't met me, my name is Scott Armstrong. I've met a lot of new people the last several weeks uh, here in the new year, and I just want to say welcome. Really glad that you're here with us. And I'm excited because today we're returning back to our series in Mark called the story of Jesus. And that begs the question, why call it the story of Jesus? And the actual really, the reality is this, that if you were to uh, look at the story of any other religious leader, you know, whether it be Muhammad with Islam or uh, Buddha with Buddhism or so forth, and you took away their story, you really wouldn't take away the essentials of that faith, of that religion if you follow. But if you take away the story of Jesus, you don't have Christianity, it's sort of like if you, you take away the engine from the car, you don't really have a car. And, and so what we're saying in this series is that the story of Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, if you're coming in either as a Christian saying, I want to go deeper in my faith, or you're coming in you're saying, really, I'm on a spiritual journey here in the new year. And I really want to know, what is Christianity truly about? You have to know the story of Jesus. You have to, to be introduced to Him, to meet Him. And that's what this series is about. We're saying that, that just as this passage says, where He says, I'm Lord, Like, the center of our faith is knowing who Jesus is and saying, are you more than a prophet? Are you Lord? When that means is, say, by being Lord, I submit my everything to you. You are the center of reality. You are the center of the universe. You are the center of my existence. And so, it seems appropriate this morning as we return here in the new year back to the Mark series that we return to a passage that really highlights that nature of Jesus and actually who He is. And of course, just like in our lives, if we are to make Him Lord of our lives, uh, there is struggle, isn't there? Like none of us, myself included, none of us come into the faith or go through the faith without controversy, without struggle, without without tension, and saying, Lord, it's easy for me to give this part of me to You. It's easy for me to give my finances to You, but my sexuality, man, that's hard. Or maybe giving my sexuality, my singleness, my marriage to You, but my finances, that's hard. Right, so to make Him Lord, to say, I submit everything to you, right, that's, that's struggle. And so I think I see that in the passage here as well. You see a struggle. You see a controversy. And even though this passage, really these two passages in one here, these two stories are on the surface about the Sabbath, they're not. Ultimately, they're about the question of, is Jesus Lord? And does he have the authority over our lives, not just just the Sabbath, but over everything as Lord? And so, what we're going to do this morning is look at three things. First, we're going to look at the enemies of Jesus, and it might surprise you who they are. Second, the response of Jesus to those enemies, and then finally, the claim of Jesus: the enemies, the response, and a claim. So let's jump in here with the enemies part. And uh, some of you know that I love history, and, and uh, I love to go to history museums in particular. And uh, I'm going to tell you my top three. You weren't asking, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Um, and so I would say the, the best one I've ever been to was 9-11 Museum in New York City. And if you've never been, uh, get thee to New York City and to that museum because of one of those pivotal events in history, in modern history in particular, And it is a profound experience to go through the story of 9-11 there. And if I had to choose a second one, I would probably pick out the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And there are a number of Holocaust museums around the world looking at the genocidal event that took place for the Jewish community. Uh, But I think the one in Washington, D.C. is a profound experience to walk through to learn more about something that was also critical in our world history. But the final one I would choose is the one probably you've never been to and you've probably never heard of, it's called Checkpoint Charlie. And it's in in Berlin, Germany. I see a few people nodding their heads, but Checkpoint Charlie was this gateway between the East and the West, the West that represented freedom and democracy, and East under communism. And where Checkpoint Charlie was back in the day during the Cold War uh, now is a museum. And so several years ago, Kirsten and I were there, and we walked through the museum. And to truly understand the story of Checkpoint Charlie in that museum is a story about what happened under communism, namely this, that people were constantly watching you. I mean, the story of, of communism, especially in particular there in East Berlin and throughout Eastern Germany, is one of the most massive surveillance states that ever existed in world history. You say, okay, where, Scott, are you going with this? What does Checkpoint Charlie have to do with this passage? And the answer is this. Jesus probably understood something about surveillance. Because he was constantly being surveilled by the religious leaders. He was constantly being, in fact, in some ways, it's almost like the morality police that you've heard about maybe recently in Iran, who are constantly walking around waiting for someone to mess up and so that they could be accused. In fact, that's what happens here in the early verses of chapter 3. It says they were watching him so that they might accuse him. You see, Jesus was constantly being surveilled by who his enemies, in particular we 're told uh, who some of those enemies are, and it 's the pharisees now that 's a name that if you 've been in the church long enough you 've heard that name over and over and over again, but I want to suggest that that maybe we need to uh, give them a little credit here this morning, and what do I mean by that well At the time that Jesus is is ministering and operating there in Judea, uh, they're under pagan rule by the Romans. And and to be Jewish uh, was to have a separate identity from the rest of the world. And when they're under the jackboot of the Roman military, they're feeling crushed in their spirits. And so it's incredibly important to be separate people, to have a cultural identity separate from the pagan nations around them, including Rome. And so there it is. There are two things in the, in the theology of, of Judaism that set you apart. One was circumcision. You know what the other one was? Sabbath. No one, there was no other religion like this. There's no other religion that had a Sabbath. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but we take it for granted. But there's no other religious system, no other belief system that believed what the Jews believed about Sabbath. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus comes along. And what does he look like to the cultural uh, leaders of their day, the cultural conservatives of the day, the Pharisees? What does he look like? He looks like a renegade. He looks like he's being licentious. It looks like he's being fast and loose with the rules here, you see. And so the religious leaders want to him, 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 him in. Try to say that a few times. All right. But I want to to delve into, I think, the deeper issue here, because on the surface, that's what it looks like. And certainly they're being controlled by fear, and that's what fear does. When you lose control, you go to fear in order to try to get control back. And I think it's part of the story of what's happening here in first century Judea with Jesus and the rabbis and the religious leaders. But there's something else that's going on. And it actually connects to a parable that Jesus once told in Luke chapter 15 called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I, that's probably the most famous parable. And I know that a lot of you in here could say me uh, some basics about what it is, and you'd be right. But it's a story about two sons, an elder brother and a younger son. And, of course, the younger son was a licentious one, right? He was the one that took the, the father's inheritance. And he went and, uh, uh, you know, wine and dined women with it, basically, and lived a frivolous life, spent it all of course, and then of course he comes home to the father because he's destitute, he's despairing, he's hopeless, and he comes back. And remember what happens? The father takes him back. And remember the elder brother's response? The elder brother's response is not celebration, but what was it? Fury. It was rage. Why? Do you remember why? We're told in the parable that the elder brother's like, I never broke a single rule. I was constantly here. I was right by your side, and you never once threw a party for me. I've kept your rules the whole time. And this younger brother of yours, a younger son, right, he goes away. He spends all of your inheritance, and you throw a party for him? Makes no sense. Well, why does he tell that story to the Pharisees? Because that's who they were, the elder brother. Now, why am I telling you that story? I mean, the passage is Mark 2, not Luke 15. Why am I connecting it here? Because the story here of the Pharisees are those who are living in fear and they're looking at the world around them and they've lost control. And what was it that they're looking to for their identity? Ultimately, it was not God and His holiness on the Sabbath they're looking to, but keeping the law. And Jesus is not keeping the law. Now, let me tell you something that's true about all religions. Okay? Now, I've said this before. If you're brand new to City Church, this will sound really odd. But I'm not a fan of religion. I've said this to you, some of you are like, yeah, I know where he's going with this, okay. I'm not a fan of religion. And if you look at all religions, they have one thing in common apart from Christianity. This is: if you keep the law, then the, the divine presence, the God or the gods, whatever you believe the deity to be, whatever that power is, whatever that force is, will owe you something in return. It's a contractual relationship with the emphasis on contract, not relationship. But only Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 You've, you're putting the cart before the horse. It's not about what you can do. It's about what's been done for you. There's nothing here that you can do. There's nothing that you can merit. If you begin to understand that, you can begin to understand the difference between Christianity and religion. And again, plenty of atheists, non-theists, and others have said, we shouldn't be big fans of religion. I agree. Uh, but, but what Jesus is saying here is something very, very different. He says he's looking at the religious leaders and saying, you're making your identity about the law. Now, what happens when you make your identity by the law and you keep the law? By definition, you exclude other people. See, so I, I keep the law, but those people over there, they don't do it. And that creates oppression. This is the reason why, we're going to see this in a second, this is part of the reason why Jesus gets so angry. Because rather than looking at the Sabbath as a gift given to people, instead they're using it as a cudgel, right, to keep people in line. It's a use of power, basically. I want you to see that this morning because that is so critical to the rest of this text here. But I want to say this, and I remember what I said in the introduction, I said, you may be surprised by the enemies. I think this says a lot to us as modern day people as well. You're saying, well, I don't know that this is our issue today, Scott. Yeah, quite the opposite. Well, like we could probably stand to learn a little bit more about the Sabbath today because we've swung the pendulum so far the other way, right? And I'll get to that here in a little bit. But so what do I mean by that? I've been reading a number of different articles the last several years with one theme in common. And it says there's been a rise of a new religion, and that new religion is called politics. Now, I've been talking about this a lot the last several years. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I've been talking about politics. You're saying, "Whoa, be careful, Scott. You're talking about politics in the pulpit. Well, let me tell you how I'm talking about it. What I'm seeing emerge in the last several years is as there's a decline of traditional religion, nature abhors a vacuum. And something else is taking its place. And what what I'm seeing increasingly is a desire to replace traditional religion with something else. And I think increasingly, at least here in the West, in America, it's politics. And, And what gets rewarded, especially in the social media culture, what gets rewarded are the most vitriolic voices of all. Not the people in the center, center left or center right, but especially those who are on the far fringes on those extremes. And we all know that. We've all read about that. But I want to read to you just a portion of an article. This is from David French. He is one of my favorite writers alive today. An article called Activism and Apathy are Poisoning American Politics. He said this, and this is written, by the way, just this year on the 1st of January. The activists represent the small minority of Americans who focus intensely on politics. A very small minority do this professionally. A somewhat larger group are political hobbyists. But listen to this last line. But members of both groups often consider politics their what? Their purpose. Politics is a good thing. I've often thought about running for office. Usually when I take a shower, I'm thinking about how I could do things differently. Like My wife says I run for office every day, uh, sort of thing like that. Um, and I'm sure you've done that too, right? I know I'm not the only one who's thought about that. Like, like what we could do with influence and, and change things. Okay. Oh, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. Um, but why do I say that? Because I, I think this is true, that, that, uh, that the politics is a force of good, but what it can often become is a religion. And I'm just using it as one example. I mean, there, I could point to a number of different things that can also be a new religion in our world, in our society today. And I know I've been talking a lot about this, friends, but I see this as a danger posed to the church. I want you to hear my heart for that. And it doesn't matter whether you're a political, liberal or a conservative, or Republican or Democrat, it's besides the point. Hear me on this. The gospel addresses this, whether you're left or right. The good news is that Jesus addresses this, and we need to have ears to hear that 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 the nature of religion is to create uh, is to point us towards purpose and meaning. And we have to be careful that there's not something that replaces that. And I think that's what, what Jesus is doing. Now, this is these are religious, uh, traditional religious uh, conservatives here, uh, leaders in the country, and he's pointing to them and he's saying, look, your heart is not for God, but it's for the things of God, for, for using uh, the law of God as a cudgel to maintain control and power. And I think there's a word for us as modern people in the church today that we need to hear, regardless, again, of our political aspirations and stripes. Um, and I just want to... For us to see that. Very important here. The power of the negative is so powerful, isn't it? Not what you're for, but what you're against. And so, and so, who are the enemies of Jesus? Well, in this passage, it's the religious leaders. But we need to be very careful. We need to have eyes to see that we can become the enemies of Jesus as well. That, that we can very easily use, use God's law as a way to keep others out and keep ourselves in. We have to be really careful with that. How do we maintain the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and understanding that He alone is Lord, but at the same time be inclusive in the sense of welcoming other people to come in, and being careful that we don't set up stumbling blocks apart from Jesus Christ, who alone is the true stumbling block, or should be, to understanding who is God and so with that in mind, I want you to hear his response, because his response, I think, begins to speak to this. And there are two things that he does here in the passage, two things. The first thing he does is he says to the religious leaders, we need to get back to our original intent. What was the Sabbath all about? And so he, I, not he, but I, I want to do this. I want to read to you the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, where the Sabbath is originally given as a command. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I suppose that what could have happened there in the Old Testament is this. He said, Well, keep the Sabbath. But it would have begged the question, Well, why? Well, what, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? And what, what's going on here is that, that God is addressing the very purpose of it. It's twofold. Number one, it's a gift. And, and, and it's a gift to remember. You see, it's just that it's not just that, that the God has said, "Hey, take a break off from work. You've been working hard for six days. Just take a break." No, He says, "Remember what you were slaves." You see, and so what is what is this gift of a, a break from work? Is a reminder that that work cannot be our identity. That, that, that is not where we find out who we are, because once we make work our identity, it becomes a slave master to us. We have to have it. We have to have the finances. We have to have the accolades. We have, you know, there's so many things that work can do if we're not careful. You know, providing for us that sense of purpose again, religion again, identity again. You see, so part of it is he's saying, look, remember that you were slaves. And so this day of rest is to remind you that, that primarily I've made you to flourish. Hear that word, flourish. The Sabbath was meant to remind us that we are men and women designed to flourish in His image. And this is where our dignity, our dignity is not in our work. But it's it's in being made in God's image. And so the, the day was set aside to remember God's holiness and, and His holiness, how He brought us out of slavery, He's telling the Jewish people. But then secondly, and related to that, not just that He's saying that not just that I brought you out, but because I brought you out, you'll be a blessing to the nations. It's just right here in the nations, not just human uh, people, but also animals as well. So it says to all of creation, you will be a blessing. Like it won't be just that I give you a gift, but through you practicing the gift, others will receive the gift as well. It's a profound, profound understanding of, of what a blessing, what a delight uh, the Sabbath was intended to be. And so, what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding them that the purpose of the Sabbath was for delight. it was to flourish it was to to live out the fullness of our humanity again, and so, in that first passage they're they 're hungry and so Jesus is addressing hunger, and this is it 's not a reflection of dignity and in the second one there's paralysis, a withered hand and and so uh, should someone be healed on the Sabbath? Yes, of course, because the Sabbath is about delight, it 's about flourishing. And Jesus is like, why would I hold back? Why wouldn't I do this when there's a need in hand? And so Jesus is addressing really, ultimately, the character of God. Please hear this. I, I know I know, there, there may be some of you coming in here today who, who are saying, uh, you know, based on what I read about, I wonder about what is God's character in light of His church. I want you to see Jesus is attempting to return the religious establishment back to the true nature of who God is. That God is a God of kindness. He's a God of compassion. But please hear this as well. He's a God of wrath. Right? Because of his second response. Right? What is it? What, what does Mark tell us? It isn't just that he's, he's returning to the original intent, but also it says he responded with anger and grief. Now, here's what's really important. Please hear this. The word there in the original for anger is epic anger. <laughs> in other words, he's not mildly annoyed. He's not a bit frustrated with the religious establishment. Oh, come on, guys. He's enraged. Why would Jesus, and we only see this, by the way, about five or six times ever in the Gospels, but it's here. Why is this one of those places where Jesus is enraged? What was God's response to the Egyptians? Do you remember? It was wrath. When God's people were enslaved, what does God do? He pours out His wrath, right? The plagues. We we know the story, right? You've seen the film Prince of Egypt probably. I mean, we know the storyline. And so it isn't just that we see God's compassion and kindness. We also see His wrath when His people have experienced oppression, injustice. Why is Jesus so infuriated? Because He sees oppression. He sees injustice and it cuts him to the core. Because instead of it being given a gift to be leveraged for the blessing in the nations, for the flourishing of people everywhere, instead it's being used as a cudgel of power to diminish humanity. To diminish dignity. And this cuts him to the core. So in some senses... In the original intent, getting him back, we see the rational side of Jesus, but here we see the emotional side. That Jesus is fully human, as well as being fully God. And so, we see his anger. It's epic anger, because of the hardness of their hearts. In a moment when they they should have been pouring out compassion for for someone in their midst that desperately needed healing. Instead, what does the text say? Look at verses 4 and 5 with me again. This is fascinating. No wonder he got so angry. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. What an opportunity. They have an opportunity to repent. They have an opportunity to say, wait a minute, we've overstepped our bounds here. Jesus, there's something you're saying here that we've missed in the original commandment. You're returning us back here. Instead, where they say, out of pride in their hearts, out of hardness in their hearts, they would rather do Jesus in and see this man continue with his suffering rather than to experience the compassion of God, the kindness of God. And that's what makes God angry. We need to hear that. We need to hear that for our lives today. I think not just a story that we read from two thousand years ago, but I think there 's a storyline in there for us what happens when when people get in the way of god 's kindness when we get in the way of god 's compassion towards others, we need to have ears to hear and I think eyes to see here in the new year what that might mean for our lives here but But when there's a lack of love, it enslaves people by by design. And then there's also that idea of grief there. There's, There's not just an anger, but there's also sadness in Jesus that we're introduced to. And I think in part his sadness is there because he grieves not only for those like the man with the withered hand, but also for the religious leaders that they also too are missing out on God's goodness. That they themselves have enslaved themselves because of how stringent, how narrow they've defined the commandment. And they themselves are missing out on God's delight on God's day. It wasn't just that the man was missing out. It was that they were missing out. And I think it grieves his heart. And I think that it grieves his heart for us to miss out today on the Sabbath. Right? Listen to what uh, the writer Isaiah, we read this in the Old Testament reading earlier, but hear it again in verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's just a poetic way of saying, I give you a gift I want you to experience the joy and the delight that this day is to remind yourselves that that Monday through Saturday doesn't define you. but, But the Sabbath is what defines you. The Sabbath is where you're reminded of who you actually are. When we go to the table in a few minutes to remind ourselves, if you're a follower of Christ, this is who you are. Beloved sons, beloved daughters, this is where we remind, this is our identity, right? And so that, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see that this morning, the delight and the joy. And at least the last thing here, this is where I conclude. And that is a claim. Because, look, you need to hear this. If I stopped here, I would have presented to Jesus, who's in a remarkable rabbi. I mean, he's a rabbi of rabbis. I think we can all agree. He's a teacher of teachers, a prophet of prophets. But here's the thing. There are plenty of people around the world who would agree to that, but say he's not the Lord. But the claim that Christianity makes is not that Jesus was a great prophet, that he was a great teacher, but he was a remarkable Lord of heaven and earth, including us as well. But the claim that he gives us comes through a very strange way. And I wondered if you heard that when this passage is being read and they're, they're accusing Jesus, hey, your, your followers, they're, they're working by picking heads of grain because they're hungry on the Sabbath. Okay, I know we can roll our eyes saying, really, come on? But then that second part is where we really go, wait a minute, what does David and his mighty men have to do with this passage? Say, well, was, does it have something to do with the Sabbath? Actually, no, it has nothing to do with the Sabbath. So why does Jesus say, haven't you read? Oh, uh, Come on, guys, don't you remember what David did back in the day? Now that begs the question, what in the world is going on there, right? This is the heart of the claim. Listen, David was the king elect. And if there's one name in Judaism, prior to the time of Jesus, that that would have been honored above all names, it was the name of David. Because he was the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. And we know the stories. Now David is king elect. He's been anointed, but he's not yet sitting on the throne. Why? Because Saul is sitting on the throne. Saul, in his disobedience, had the throne taken away from him, but he didn't want to give it up, and so instead he wants to murder David. And so he goes after David. David is now, along with his men, the mighty men, they're now refugees, basically, and they're hungry, they're starving. And so they wander into a local house of worship, and there's what's called the consecrated bread. And the consecrated bread, they were called the ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws, by definition, you are not allowed unless you're the high priest. That's what Jesus notes there, doesn't he? Unless you're the high priest. No one could touch the consecrated bread, but what does David do? David says, I'm hungry. <laughs> grabs the bread, hands it to his men, right? And why would Jesus bring that up? Why in the world? Such an odd story to bring up. Doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Sabbath. Why bring it up? Here's why. It was a ceremonial law. It wasn't a moral law. What's a moral law? The Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Keep the Sabbath day holy. But what's a ceremonial law? It's temporary. It can be what's called abrogated. Jesus, in his time elsewhere, says, I've come to fulfill the law, to see what it's really about, and do away with that which is not permanent, like the moral law, but instead do away with that which is temporary. What was David doing? David was saying, look, there are exceptions to this. I'm king, and I'm hungry. And David, Jesus now looking back, and he's saying, you see, and reading between the lines here now, Remember, he goes on to say, Sabbath was not made for man. Man was sorry. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. What was he doing there? He's saying, as mighty as David was, I'm greater. I'm the Lord. And what is true about the Lord, the one who, who swung the, the stars into the sky, who created the Milky Way, who created the moral law? What's true? He's the author. And if you're the author... You can write the laws, and you can rewrite the laws. What was he doing? He was saying, you have attempted to rewrite the laws in your own image, religious leaders, but here's the original meaning of it, and I'm returning you back. And so I'm writing and and highlighting now, this is what it means for the flourishing of humanity. That's why the law was given here. And I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the authority. I'm the one who wrote this law. This is what it's about. Now, we should then not then be surprised with what happens right after this. Maybe that happened early in the morning on the Sabbath, and then right after that, they go into the synagogue in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we see that man who's healed. And what happens in verse 6? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Here's why that is so profound. If you had taken two groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, you say they are oil and water. The Pharisees hated the Herodians, absolutely hated them. You know why? Because they were they were political traitors. They're secular Jewish leaders who were in league with Rome. And the Pharisees held the Herodians in the highest in contempt. And yet we're told here they built an alliance. I want you to see that's how opposed to Jesus they were. That they're willing. Remember the old adage: the enemy my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here, friends. And so so people that normally, and the only thing that they had in common, the Herodians and the Pharisees, was Jesus, and their contempt and their hatred for Him, because He stood in the way of their agendas. And so, and verse 6 tells us, for the very first time in the story of Jesus, that they plotted, they were planning His demise. But here's the good news, friends. Not only was He the Lord of the Sabbath, but He was Lord over death itself. Because remember, on the last day of creation, in the creation account in Genesis, after six days of creating, what does God say? He rested from His work and He said, it is good. What does Jesus do? Because of the Herodians, because of the Pharisees, placing Him on the cross, what does Jesus say? His very Some of His very last words on the cross. Remember what He said? It is finished. My work is done. Don't you see? When Jesus rested from His work on the cross, He created Sabbath rest eternally for us. Not just a day of Sabbath that we we take once a week here, but that we enter, as the writer of Hebrews says, that one day we'll in full, we'll enter into His rest permanently. There'll be no more tears, uh, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And we'll experience the fullness of what the Sabbath was intended to be. That the Sabbath day was intended to be a a picture of, into the kingdom of God, or what will be eternity will be like forever. That's what the Sabbath was intended to be. And when he went to the cross and he said, It is finished, he entered into his rest so that we might enter into ours. And so that we, as, as his followers, now can say, You are the Lord of my life. And not just on Sunday, but between the Sundays. So here's where I want to end. I want to ask you this question What does your Sabbath look like today? In light of this, what can it look like? What can this day look like? I know there's a temptation, isn't there? I know for some of you there's a temptation right now as you leave here today to start getting caught up on some work for next week. But I want you to know if you do that, you're going back to Egypt. You're going back to enslavement. You're saying, I have to have there's something that's more valuable to me than rest. There's something that's more important to me than my identity in God. This is the day that we, our, our, our identity is reformed into His image. But instead, I'm going to steal that opportunity away in order for me to be enslaved to work on Monday. You say, Scott, you understand, I, I'm so behind. So what? You know what? Trust Him more. Trust that He's for you and not against you. That He's kind and compassionate. Right? And that, that Monday will take care of itself. That there's something that's more valuable and more important to you is just enjoy today is enjoy to delight i mean what could happen if you looked at today as a day of delight well what, what could what could happen we say i'm do absolutely nothing today and god would say awesome it's like great take advantage of that eat some great food <laughs> or uh or i don't know whatever that looks like whatever delight and joy looks like for you that would honor him that's what sabbath is about and not just that, but by reposition, reform today, it sets you up for the rest of the week to be a blessing to the nations because you've learned how to Sabbath well. you learn how to be compassionate well and to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to the city of Atlanta, to be a blessing to the people around City Church side. And so may you be those people. May you be the people the Sabbath formed into his identity because he's Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Sometimes it's hard, and and may you give us ears to hear, especially when we struggle. Uh, There's resistance sometimes within our hearts. There's been resistance in my own heart this week, uh, and you know that, Father. Um, It's hard to say that Jesus Christ, your Lord, but then where the rubber meets the road, um, that can be hard um, to give you those places that are just hard to give up. And so, Lord, teach our hearts how to do that well. Lord, give us ears to hear that uh, you've, you've made us to enjoy the Sabbath, that Sabbath was made for us, um, that is not intended to be um, uh, enslavement. It's not intended to, to oppress us, but instead it's to free us, to liberate us, to live in freedom that we might flourish. So we're grateful, Father, that you are a God of flourishing, that you're a God who designed the world to flourish. And in the places where we don't see the flourishing May we you be a blessing to the nations. We praise your name, of Jesus. Amen.
2: And now we continue in worship through confession. And as we do, um, I just want to lead us into it a little bit. One, the, the, the passage is kind of perplexing, right? Where you have a man with a withered hand. And Jesus says, stick it out, take what's probably most shameful to you what you would love to hide more than anything and put it out there, right? There's nothing like a good sports coat to hide a little extra weight in the winter, right? And Jesus says, put it out there. I just wonder what in you, what's that shame in you? What's that thing in you that needs to come out and be in the light so Jesus can heal it? And let's take a few moments now. Where is the spirit convicting and bringing conviction and, and pricking in your heart to bring out to him? to allow him to heal, heal you in those places. You take a few moments with that, and then we'll pray that. To, this prayer of confession in a moment together. now, church, let's pray this prayer of confession together as his body together. We confess that we have not made you Lord of the Sabbath or other parts of our lives between the Sundays. We have not trusted that the purpose of your commands are to bring us flourishing life and find that we are restless on the Sabbath, ungrounded and tired. Forgive us and restore Sabbath delight to our lives through Jesus Christ, Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness. Walk in his peace today. And now we go to the table. And then there's so many correlations between the Sabbath and the table, right? And interestingly enough, we take the table on the Sabbath. And just as the Sabbath is something where we remember and it's a delight for us, the table is something Jesus left for us. And I'm reminded of Jeremiah 15:60. Remember when he says that the word came to me and I, and I ate it and it became my delight. And see, in the table, that's just what it is. It's, it's, it's telling us that Jesus' word, Jesus as the word, can't stay on the surface of our lives. He must go in. And at the table, we, we literally, friends, we participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a special way. Something I, I have, would have a hard time telling you and explaining to you. But he promises here that as we remember, as we look back, just as they did at the Exodus, we look back and we see Jesus high and lifted up. We see him take the wrath and, and the holiness of God in our place. And that fills us with faith. And so, yes, it's, he is our gift. Just as the Sabbath is, remember the gift. He is the gift for us. And now he fills us to be a blessing. We go out of here full of him to go and give to the world around us in the same way. And so as we come to the table, there are two things that would hinder some of us from the table. The first one is is if you've not yet believed on him. It'd be inauthentic for you to have communion with a God that's not yet your God. We, we would ask you to withhold from the table, and we would love to talk to you about that, if that's a journey you're on. And we want you to know City Church is a safe place to investigate. We say all the time, you can belong here before you believe. And we'd love to journey with you in that. But the second one, even believers, Paul says to examine the body before you come forward. If your heart is hard and, and unwilling to forgive, he says don't take and eat. But to, to examine and to, to, to bring a heart that is where the table is saying a common union. There's forgiveness. There's peace. And so if there's anything against a brother or sister you're unwilling to forgive, he says examine that. Go and, go and deal with that before you come forward. But with those helping with communion, please come forward. But if this morning you're hungry for him and that forgiveness is there and you're examining the body, come take and eat. Come and be filled by him. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he raised it in front of his disciples, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he raised it in front of them, and he said, this is my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it as often as you come together. And we join with the saints who throughout the ages proclaim this great mystery, which goes like this. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, when you're ready, come and take your meal with Jesus.
3: He who was before there was light Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing he who heard humanity's cry Left his throne to wake as a child He became like the least of us. Thank you